Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm David Knowles, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, we bring you updates from the battlefront, discuss the use of decoys by Ukrainian forces, and we interview Karolina Hurd from the Institute for the Study of War. Bravery takes you through the most unimaginable hardships to finally reward you with victory. We need a military strategy for Ukraine to gain a decisive advantage on the battlefield to win the war. Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday afternoon, we sit down with leading journalists from the Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Tuesday, the 19th of September, one year and 207 days since the full-scale invasion began. And today, I'm joined by our associate editor, Dominic Nichols, from New York at the UN General Assembly, assistant comment editor, Francis Sternley, and Brussels correspondent, Joe Barnes. I started by asking Dom for the latest news from Ukraine. Well, hi, David. Hi, everybody. So let's start with the overnight strikes. So Russia has hit three industrial warehouses uh, in a drone strike on the western Ukrainian city of Lviv early today, or overnight last night in the early hours of today. Caused a huge fire, killed at least one person, according to local officials. So Lviv governor Maxim Kozitsky said that 18 drones had been used in the attack, 15 shot down. More widely, Ukraine said its air defences had shot down 27 out of 30 Shahid drones overnight across the country, including strikes in Kupiansk, that's in the northeast of the country, in Kharkiv Oblast, that killed three civilians, reported there by the region's governor. Elsewhere, the fighting around Bakhmut is still carrying on, but Ukraine's liberation of Klishkiva and Andrivka, which are about five and seven k's-ish, respectively, south of Bakhmut, there's reports from Ukraine saying that may well have degraded Russia's defence in the area and rendered combat ineffective as many as three russian brigades now just let's just pause for a moment there what do we mean by combat ineffective in military terms there's a very real difference between defeat and destroy if you defeat something talking about a regiment or a battalion or a division take away about a third of its combat power it can no longer conduct its mission but it can still be incredibly violent and pack a punch so when we say defeat that is very different from destroy which is it's completely wiped out. A tank that's had its tracks knocked out, for example, but the gun is still working. It could be said to have been defeated because it can't move anywhere, but it can still fire the gun. But to destroy it is when it's completely wiped out. So saying these brigades are combat ineffective does not mean they've all been killed. It means that they are they can no longer do what you'd expect a brigade to do, but could still be in the area and still active and still pose problems. 
Anyway, carrying on. So Ukrainian Ground Forces Commander Colonel General Alexander Sierski, he said yesterday that Klishkiva and Andreevka were important elements of the Russian defensive line in that area, but had been breached. So he's suggesting that once that was breached, then the the main supply line up into Bakhmut for Russia um, is gone, and therefore they would be under extreme pressure to keep hold of Bakhmut. And as we know, it's got huge symbolic value after the, all the fighting last year. Now, separately on donations, so we've got the Ramstein, the next Ramstein meeting, Ramstein contact groups kicking off today in Ramstein in Germany. And US Secretary of Defence Lloyd Austin has said that Ukraine will soon start to receive the promised uh, M1 Abrams tanks from the United States. Remember, the US has promised 31 of these tanks at the beginning of the year. We're expected a tranche of about 10 to go in the first cohort. And Mr. Austin is suggesting that should be quite soon. Connected to that, Denmark today has said it's going to donate another 45 tanks to Ukraine. This comes from comments by the country's defence minister, Charles Ludpulsen. The donation, that's going to be 30 Leopard 1 tanks and 15 T-72. Uh, so I'll take a little pause there, David. Francis Sternley, can I go to you? You're in New York at the UN General Assembly. Um, tell us about it. Well, thanks, David. Yes, I'm at the United Nations here in New York. Uh, I've just got into the press gallery overlooking the main stage where President Biden will be speaking shortly and then followed later by President Zelensky. All I'll say is, having queued since about 5.30 this morning, is I hope that the UN's work on attaining world peace is better than their signage and ability to organise orderly queues. But anyway, I'm here now and it's a gorgeous sunny day. The mood is pretty upbeat. A lot of people are very interested to hear what President Biden and Zelensky will have to say. I'm not expecting any major revelations from speaking to people here. I think President Zelensky, this is his first in-person visit since the invasion began here at the UN. He's expected to try and galvanize support, of course, for the country, promote Ukraine's food security. Of course, the UN was a key broker in the grain deal, which we've discussed at length in the past. He's also going to take part in various Security Council meetings and hold bilateral talks with other leaders, including the President of the United States. He's also here with Dmitry Kuleba, the foreign minister, who said that Ukraine is now at a critical juncture, continuing to advance on the battlefield. It's critical to sustain and strengthen worldwide support for Ukraine. And indeed, I think that's the main priority here is keeping Ukraine in the headlines. And of course, it is fortuitous timing, given what's going on in Azerbaijan at the moment. And I imagine that will be something that will draw our attention, particularly in the coming hours and days. I'm going to try and speak to the Azerbaijan foreign minister or security minister later on. So it's all happening here at the UN, David. Absolutely. Thank you, Francis. Any sense from you if Dom Nichols's interview with John Kirby and his comments about UN reform have been registered in the US media? Have you seen that around? Uh, No worries if not, but just curious from London. No conversations about that yet, but I do get the sense that the UN, the people you talk to here, that there is more of a criticism about how it has conducted itself in recent years years and this feeling that the recent events in Ukraine and perhaps even in Azerbaijan too show that there is a failure of robustness on certain issues which is allowing countries to in essence behave outside of the UN mandate. Now, of course, that's not anything necessarily new. Countries don't always have to obey the UN as we've seen many times, even with Western countries in recent years. But nevertheless, there is, I think, a sense that particularly when you have an imperialist war, which was launched by Russia, 
that it should not really have been enabled and facilitated in the way that it has. But I think that's a conversation that it will be interesting to see whether it really registers deeply. I mean, another thing that strikes you when you come here is that there is a way that things are done. Uh, and it is an enormous site, um, huge buildings designed to dwarf the individual. And one wonders whenever you're in these kind of places how much the individual voice can really count for um, and how much power is in invisible committees. But anyway, I will see. I'm, I'm keeping an open mind. Uh, but uh, thus far, I've only been here for a few hours. And so it's difficult to register anything more than just the innate conversation taking place between journalists outside in the cold. And what's your view, Francis, right now? Do you have a good view of the stage? Where, where are you? Place, place yourself for us, if you will. Place myself. Well, I'm just standing outside of the press gallery, but my seat is the best in the house. So if you imagine the famous speech stage, which, of course, we'll be posting that on the live blog later, and I will be live blogging too and tweeting as well, then I'm directly in front of it. So I will be seeing President Zelensky and President Biden giving their speeches from realistic, it's probably only about... I don't know, 20 metres, something like that. So very, very close up. I have also liaised with Zelensky's people here in uh, New York, and I'm very grateful to those listeners who've helped facilitate that. He is, of course, exceptionally busy, but I've already had a few interesting conversations offline. So it's going to be, I think, an interesting 48 hours of which the Ukraine issue is very much on the agenda here. Absolutely. Well, best of luck with that, Francis. Dom Nichols. Hi, just a a quick question, if I may. Hello, Francis. Great to hear you there. Can you just talk us through the the sort of geography? Can you see where the seats are, where the delegates will sit? Can you, for example, see where the Russian delegate sits and who is to his left and right? Can you give us a feel for the sort of the body language or the, the seating, the ergonomics of the room where there might be some tension or where the power blocks are? Do they sit in geographic blocks or is it done alphabetically or what's the makeup of the room? Well, it's a bit reminds me somewhat of the Houses of Parliament in Britain in the sense that, of course, it's much larger, but it's still more intimate than it looks on telly. Um, and yes, you can see the, the body language of all of the delegates here. I'm not quite certain from where I'm standing whether it's done in alphabetical or, or, or whether it's done broken up into other sort of geographical blocks. But certainly there is an intimacy here that you perhaps don't register from television. I was speaking to a journalist just a moment ago who said that you can easily register awkwardness in the room, tension in the air. These things are palpable in a chamber in a way that you just can't quite capture when one is watching on television or on video after the fact. And so that will be something I'm hoping to be able to write about for The Telegraph because it is something that, of course, you have to be in the room for and it's worth queuing for. Well, thank you very much, Francis Sternley, for calling in from the UNGA in New York. Joe, can I come to you? You've written up a couple of stories I think we should talk through. Can we start with remarks from Major General Kirilo Budanov? Uh, yeah, our, our favourite guy from the HUR, or the GUR, the Ukraine's Military Intelligence Directorate, the recently minted uh, freestyle general by uh, President Zelensky. But he's given an interview to The Economist, which was fairly interesting because it comes at a time when as dom's speaking about weapons donations uh, to ukraine dom's going to speak a little bit later about the russian sort of attempt to ramp up its own military uh, industrial complex but ukraine doesn't have much of a domestic production system in place for sustaining its forces. So he has said, Budenov has said, Ukraine knows the West can give more aid and weapons to Kyiv because, and I quote, warehouses in Western countries are not completely empty. And he said, 
Ukraine had to build up an arsenal in order to outlast Russia, which he predicted could run out of weapons as early as 2026. He said Ukraine could not do this without the help of Western governments because Ukraine's arm industry had been blighted by decades of corruption, underinvestment and sabotage. And he said, we are dependent on external players. Russia is mostly dependent on itself. And I just think that's uh, completely fascinating, purely on the basis of it's an acknowledgement that Ukraine has to go back to the West and ask for supplies beyond the supplies it's already received to fuel its sort of spring-summer counteroffensive, which we expect is going to come to an end in sort of October, maybe, as the muddy season arrives. And then on this, Budinov said he has good intelligence about the political mindset in the West, and he said it is absolutely undecided how long the West will be able to maintain a, a sufficient supply of resources to us Warehouses in Western countries are not completely emptied, no matter what anyone says. We can see this very clearly as an intelligence agency. So he's basically saying that excuses that the shelves are running bare in the West is a political decision rather than actually the reality on the ground. And you'd so from my various dealings with former British Defence Secretary Ben Wallace, he would always say, look, we haven't got that much to give. When I last spoke to me, he mentioned that Britain had cleared out every military, or sorry, every civilian mine clearing device, purchased it in Britain and then sent it to Ukraine. So that's an interesting remark that basically Kiev is stealing itself for Western governments to say, no, we cannot supply you by basically saying, look, we know you've got lots to give. You need to give it to us uh, because allowing Russia to win is going to be not only damaging for Ukraine, but also Western governments. And essentially, they argue, what a waste of the supplies that you've already given us uh, to the tune of hundreds of billions of dollars in military aid will just go down the drain if Russia is allowed to win. Thank you very much, Joe, for that. One more story, I think, from you that's especially interesting. We've heard of this before, the Ukrainian armed forces using decoys to get Russian missiles and drones to destroy something which turns out to be incredibly cheap and essentially militarily worthless. You've written this up. What did you find? As you said, David, it's not a new sort of story. I think the, the Wall Street Journal, potentially last year, maybe last summer, wrote up a piece about how wooden high miles were being deployed on the front lines and left to uh, basically be destroyed because they knew whatever missile, whatever piece of artillery, whatever weapon that Russia would use to destroy that fake HIMAR would be considerably more expensive and, and rarer than a, a, a kind of a painted piece of wood. But that has now really ramped up and become a lot more interesting. And as we're, we're speaking about now, this war has become the battle of attrition it's who can outlast the other so ukraine is going back to this tactic and refining it to try and basically just wear out russian supplies and as i was researching this piece i've been told about the systems by a uh, sort of a senior ukrainian official uh, on my travels uh, previously and we've, we've spoken about this um, i found a really cool video of what was a German-made Iris-T air defence system. It was just protruding just from a tree line in southern Ukraine with its camouflage netting basically failing to conceal it. On the face of it, you would think, God, this is such a mistake from the Ukrainians. Why have they got a 140 million euro piece of kit on the front lines in a tree line near open terrain that Russian spotter drones will be 
scouring for potential things to blow up. And, as you would imagine, this piece of equipment was soon spotted um, by a Russian drone and a Lancet kamikaze drone was dispatched to destroy it. Watching this video, pieces of shrapnel flew off into the trees while this IRST launcher became briefly engulfed in a fireball. What a scout for them, for the Russian army. Well, but that, that's exactly what the Ukrainians wanted, to believe, wanted them to believe. So the Ukrainians have de- basically taken this age-old concept called a... And uh, any sort of Russian and Ukrainian speakers will be able to correct me on the pronunciation. Maskirovka which basically translates into little masquerade. And it's the strategy of denial, disinformation and deception that has been so central to Soviet military planning for generations. Um, It's Ukraine's chance and time to use this kind of smoke and mirror tactics to sucker Russian forces into wasting valuable resources on dummy targets. So we've discovered that sort of dozens of these decoys have been littered across the front line um, by the Ukrainians and it's a Ukrainian source as I said uh, told me it's a tactic for making the Russians use their drones for nothing we've discovered fake American HIMARS rocket launchers um, M77155 millimeter artillery howitzers there has been Leopard 2 tanks uh, made up Soviet era book surface to air missile launchers and fake radar systems that have all been laid out on the battlefield from above the Russian drone operators that are looking for sort of targets can easily be confused that they have found sort of a prized system. But in reality, they're basically targeting things made of wood, cardboard and scrap metal. There's a company in the Czech Republic who have been making inflatable HIMARS, um, which have been used uh, across the battlefield as deceptions. And then this bit was actually taken from a brilliant report by the Kiev Post um, that has recently, and they spoke to sort of Met. Invest, uh, which is the firm that owns the Avostal Iron and Steelworks in Mariupol, and its owner, uh, Rinat Askametov, uh, is uh, Ukraine's richest man. He personally approved for the Metinvest's workers to start creating and building fake sort of targets around. And they um, started off making sort of these dummy howitzer targets out of drain pipes but then as they realized they were working they have basically slowly ramped up the technology inside of these things a spokesman for metinvest told keep post the enemy is not stupid we have to adapt we always look to add something new so as i mentioned the early examples of fake high miles were wooden frames mounted on pickup trucks the latest versions of these fake weapons are made of metal they contain real heat sources and radar sources which are essentially used to trick Russia's thermal imaging cameras and other various monitors that they use and deploy to basically scour the battlefield. So the Metinvest version of the US-donated M777 howitzer basically uses a drain pipe to replicate its barrel and is sent to the front line in Flatpak, which uh, apparently they can be used, uh, erected in about 30 minutes and cost about £800, $1,000, to uh, manufacture that's in comparison to the actual weapons costing about five million dollars uh, and russian weapons costing up to six million dollars to destroy them so that's the interesting development and i think what we've discovered is this war has become a war of attrition so it's who can sustain the longest but it's also a war and i think um while don was in america i've forgotten that the chap's name off the top of my head but he was speaking about how 
both sides are now using capabilities that are essentially really cheap to destroy higher value targets. So we know that the British donated Challenger 2 tank, which was destroyed on the Orokiv uh, axis of advance in Zaporizhia, was essentially hit by a Russian loitering munition, uh, which probably cost about £25,000, $35,000. That tank, we believe, cost £4 million. So that's the sort of threat that each side is dealing with. They're dealing with trying to outfox each other using cheaper weapons that are single-use. Some of them are highly sophisticated, but they're not costing millions and millions of dollars. So it's fascinating how the Ukrainians are using cheap dummies to fool Russia into using expensive weapons. And I know Don will probably want to speak to you about the art of Britain using blow-up tanks. I know the United States uh, fielded a ghost army of... um, basically decoys which had false radio signals and sound effects during the second world war and uh it's a tactic that has stood the test of time and ukraine are still using it today well thank you very much for that joe dom i know you want to come in here yeah just to say that the the subject of deception on the battlefield is is as old as there have been battlefields quite frankly and it's fascinating and it's it's the area where the the artists and the creatives and the uh, the visionaries can really just just run riot. I mean, we had the Ho- Hobart's funnies in the Second World War. Colonel Hobart, who um, who came up with the, the most extraordinary vehicles, they weren't particularly they weren't decoys. They were to get through particular tactical problems. But the idea of using creativity on the on, on the battlefield is age old, as we've been talking about, as Joe's been saying. The British Army. I I, I used to occasionally play with blow-up tanks and these are are full-size tanks that are just inflatable and they look ridiculous as they're being uh, as they're being pumped up and then equally more ridiculous as they collapse and the sort of the barrel very very sort of flaccid and it just sort of flops onto the floor and all the rest of it but they work and they look good they're the right size Uh, in some certain circumstances they can be um, heated so that they would look as if the engines have been running all day if you drive a tank all day for a few hours like any vehicle the engine's going to be quite warm and that will have a, that has a thermal signature as will the gun if it's been firing so you can make these things look as they should do and it's all to entice as joe's been saying to entice the enemy to use up very expensive missiles other munitions away from where your real stuff is i mean we saw remember nato's uh, war against serbia in 1999 to eject serbian forces from kosovo serbia was uh, was very clever there at, at building stuff that looked like air defense systems and tanks and other things and the they were quite merrily blown up by NATO air power. And then people started to wonder why they weren't going up in a massive fireball. It's because they were made out of sort of balsa wood and, and, and bits of sticky back plastic. I digress, but not much more than that. And then when Serbia did withdraw its forces from Kosovo, there was this whole traffic jam with, of, of kit. People were saying, well, hang on, I thought we'd destroyed them all. So it, it goes back a, a long way and as an entirely sensible thing to do. But on that, as we were talking about it, so this... This comes after Rostec, that's it was Russia's state corporation, which controls much of the weapons industry in Russia, and, and is the biggest the weapon producer in Russia. Has said it's ramped up the production of some military hardware by by well some degree. So Bekan Ozduev, who's the industrial director of uh, Rostec, said production volumes had gone up by uh, ten uh, tens of times. He said there had been significant growth in the production of tanks, armored vehicles. Rocket launchers, artillery, Iskander, short-range ballistic missiles, Pantsir air defence systems and hypersonic Kinzhal missiles. Uh, He said, we're going forward at cruising speed, smoke from all the pipes. 
uh, because there's been smoke from all the turrets, I would suggest. Now, we need to take this with a pinch of salt. There's no way we can verify this here at the Telegraph. And, you know, Mr. Osdorff has every reason to burnish his credentials and to big up the production capacity of, of his plant. Of course, he wants to look good in the eyes of the boss. But it underlines, as Joe said, that we're well into the industrial and attritional phase of this war. Like who can outproduce and out, uh, outlast the other? So, um, yeah, we note it. We can't prove it at all. But uh, we do need to keep a very, very close eye on the industrial side of, uh, of where the war's going at the moment. Now, elsewhere on the uh, on the political and domestic front, the UN General Assembly is uh, ramping up in New York. Francis Durnley is there. We're hoping to hear from him uh, later in the week, I believe. Uh, and at an election campaign fundraiser in New York yesterday, President Biden said, we rallied the world to support Ukraine and united NATO because I was convinced at the beginning that Putin was counting on NATO not being able to stick together and that would be enough. Now, Mr. Biden is expected to use his speech to the UN General Assembly uh, this week to appeal for world leaders and, importantly, Republicans in Congress to stand with Ukraine against Russia. His address is it's going to be the centrepiece of his three-day visit to New York. He's also meeting heads of Central Asian nations, head of Israel, uh, Brazil. But speaking about NATO unity, just worth pausing for a moment, because I noticed some very interesting comments over the weekend by General Eric Christofferson, who's Norway's Chief of Defence. He was speaking after a meeting of the Chiefs of Defence of NATO countries that was held in Oslo. And uh, about this idea, remember Putin's always going on about how, my God, he had to invade Ukraine because NATO was encroaching its borders and NATO's a big threat and all that kind of nonsense. Well, General Christofferson was saying that Putin knew very well that NATO was not a threat to Russia because he stripped out Russian forces along the border with Norway to a maximum 20% of what it was before the launch of the full-scale invasion. So if he was so terrified about NATO, he's done absolutely the wrong thing by shifting all his tanks 2,000 miles south. So, you know, it's a nonsense. It's an absolute nonsense. We just need to, to point that out each time, this idea of uh, NATO expanding. It's countries wishing to join NATO because there's a maniac next door that's trying to invade everyone and kill loads of people. Also in New York, just coming to the end of this bit, also in New York for the, for the UN Assembly, President Zelensky, uh, he's questioned Russia's place in the UN. He said uh, the UN needs to answer for, quote, allowing his country's invader a seat at the tables of power. Um, he's uh, been already been photographed in New York visiting the small number of Ukrainian military personnel undergoing medical treatment in the US. Uh, we're expecting him to make an address to the world leaders in the General Assembly today and speak tomorrow at a special UN Security Council meeting uh, about uh, the war. So the fingers crossed for, for Francis Durnley update on that tomorrow, David. Joe and Dom, can I go to your final thoughts? Uh, Joe Barnes, would you like to start? Yeah, mine was just referring to the trial sort of ongoing in The Hague at the moment and that Russia is complaining about sort of... Uh, international uh, criminal court charges and various uh, sort of condemnation of its invasion and saying it was doing it purely on trying to protect itself and it's just it's just interesting and I I think um, maybe tomorrow or some point further in the week we should actually come back to that and have a look at it as it goes on because it's a Ukraine was essentially defending Ixt case this morning The, um, the chap who was delivering it was basically outlining how Russia has 
claim that Ukraine was uh, committing genocide, basically flipping the international definition of genocide on its head, he said. I, I think it's interesting to see how that pans out. Obviously, we think that Ukraine will probably come out on top in that one. But it just goes to show that how Russia still has influence in these international arenas such as the UN or the international criminal courts in The Hague and can still basically flex its muscles um, when it wants to. And even by calling these cases, I just think it's fascinating. We should watch out for that going forward. Thank you, Joe. Tom Nichols. So I would pay attention to the breaking news today that uh, Azerbaijan has launched attacks against Armenian forces in the disputed territory of Karabakh. It's the biggest fighting since the fragile peace established in 2020 after the last uh, spat there, last war there. Now, I mention it because it's notable anyway. It's a big flare-up, and we should really get to get James on to, to give us the ins and outs of it. But Russia is supposed to provide security guarantees to Armenia, but will be almost powerless to do so given the effort demanded by the war in, in Ukraine. The CSCO, the Collective Security Treaty Organization, that, that Russia would, would want to style as a NATO equivalent, um, it's, it's nothing like the scale or um, the capability, but there's a grouping of Russia, Armenia, Belarus, Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan and Tajikistan formed in 2002. The CSCO is, is utterly powerless. It's basically just Russia and some other bits and pieces of diplomatic cover, if you like, for Russian activity. But if Russia can't do anything here to support Armenia, it just shows the the inability to project security guarantee and force in the uh, in, in that region, and you could extrapolate that elsewhere. And so that I think is quite interesting. But also, just put put all this together. I mean, war is not just one element. So the the land war, people are saying, oh, the counteroffensive isn't going very fast. The war is much bigger than that. If you, the war is about presenting a set of strategic challenges to your enemy and out just overworking them, making them making them respond to things too late so they can't deal with everything. So if you load up Russia, or if Russia is loaded up by a convenient collection of strategic issues, such as a counteroffensive in the south, stuff going on in the Black Sea with ships being you know turned into coral reefs for the future sub backward diving tourist industry. You've got drones in Moscow. You've now got inability to support Armenia. These are all big strategic issues that are presented to Russian leaders and Putin in particular to overload the system. And eventually something could crack. This is an accumulation of pressure, small, small advances on all these different diplomatic and military fronts could potentially then just see a shattering of it. So, you know, in and of itself, in of itself, each of these things won't lead to a victory tomorrow. But this is all about ramping up the pressure on Russia, and I think it'd be very interesting to see um, the calls Armenia makes for Russian support, and very importantly, how Russia responds to that. Um, Dom spoke there about the sort of huge ruptures and fissures the war in Ukraine has caused in international politics. Joe Bonds, from your perspective as Brussels correspondent, how much change have you seen over the past 18 months, uh, two years, in, in how the EU sort of presents its diplomacy to the outside world? What changes have you seen from the EU thanks to the war in Ukraine? So it's fascinating in so many ways how the European Union has changed. And I'll, I'll start purely internally the likes of Poland were essentially sort of seen as like a bogeyman uh, of EU politics before the full-scale invasion. And now it has become one of the biggest power brokers in 
the the um, EU discusses sanctions, you'll have various different countries. Um, some are harder, some are softer. Poland have been one of the full-blown, let's get every sanction under the sun on Russia as we can. We don't care about whether we're starved of Russian fossil fuels, oil, gas, coal, etc. Let's go full hog. And it seems Poland take on the likes of Germany, the likes of France, the likes of Italy, the natural sort of kind of power base of the EU. And then the war in Ukraine has split up traditional power blocks in the uh, in the EU. So Poland and Hungary once used to be once used to be the bestest of friends, but now because their leaders don't agree on Ukraine, they're not so friendly. Um, but also, I think the war in Ukraine has created space for the EU to actually become this geopolitical machine uh, where it looks at politics outside of the EU and has an, an ability to develop and influence them. That kind of the idea of the EU having its own foreign policy for years was laughed at and said that was the one sort of thing that member states would never give up on. But we've seen actually the likes of the EU developing its fund to make sure that its member states are reimbursed for weapons donations to Ukraine. The EU now is the single biggest donor to Ukraine um, since the beginning of the war. It's not just on weapons, but includes sort of this macroeconomic donations to basically essentially allow the Ukrainian state to carry on, make sure the pensioners can receive their pensions, make sure the hospital staff are paid and the lights are switched on in public buildings and stuff like that, and basically keeping Ukraine's economy slightly afloat at a time of war. So it's really interesting to see how the EU has changed. Thank you, Dom, Francis and Joe. Last week, Francis and I interviewed Carolina Hurd, the Russia deputy team lead and analyst at the Institute for the Study of War. We spoke about the deportation of children and Russian military doctrine. It was a really fascinating conversation. Thank you so much to the ISW for their time and help. Here is our interview. Let's start with one of the most horrific aspects of this war, which is, of course, the kidnapping of Ukrainian individuals and particularly children on a vast scale. It's something we've tried to cover extensively on the podcast and at The Telegraph in our own investigations. When did you first hear about this? And what work do you do in that space? Yeah, so we started first getting chatter from Russian sources before even Ukrainian sources that this was happening as early as July or August of last year. And it was seemingly these very innocuous announcements made by different occupation administrators announcing that they were taking groups of children to Russia for rest or relaxation or rehabilitation programs. And this at first seemed very odd and very off. So we kept digging into this. And as we kept digging into this, the Ukrainian government started coming out with its own statements on the deportation of children. And then the thing that really broke it for me was it's now deleted, but we found it on a, a government portal for the Krasnodar Krai city administration announcing that there's a thousand orphans from Mariupol up for adoption in Krasnodar Krai. And that was when things really clicked for me, that there was something much more larger and insidious going on. Systemic. Systemic, in fact. Yeah. So these kind of seemingly innocuous very bureaucratic announcements about almost like advertisements about these rest and rehabilitation programs for Ukrainian children that then quickly snowballed into the realization that it appears as though Russia is conducting systemic deportations of children as well as forced adoption into Russian families in Russia as a way of slowly eradicating Ukrainian national identity. And what are the 
strategic implications. It almost sounds crass to talk about it in those terms, but there is a strategic element to this. What is that from the Russian perspective? Absolutely. And in, in, in the worst way possible, there are strategic implications to this. We've observed the depopulation of Ukrainian territory, specifically around Mariupol or in Zaporizhia, Kherson Oblast, and then the repopulation of that territory with Russian citizens. So the strategic implication of kind of forcibly depopulating an area of territory and then repopulating it with your own residents that will, of course, allow Russia to consolidate occupational control of these areas, et cetera, because importing Russians to vote in their staged elections, run the administrations, that sort of thing. And it's also all part of this wider trend we've observed with Putin and the, the Kremlin in general of wanting to create this veneer of legality or legitimacy over all of their actions. So Putin, of course, went on a bit of a run of basically publishing or signing laws that allowed for the adoption of Ukrainian children into Russian families, that sort of thing, because he's very invested in making it seem like everything he's doing is legal and moral. And that's also translated into that depopulation, repopulation effort, because as he's depopulating Ukrainian areas of Ukrainians and repopulating them with Russians, these Russians will be voting in elections, participating in kind of civil society in these occupied areas in a way that creates this veneer of legitimacy for the occupation administration in these areas. Just very quickly, you said you first came across this, sort of the whisperings of this and last year. And since then, there's been lots of reporting about it. What's the state of play now? Do we have a sense of how many children are still in Russia? Could you bring up to date on the story? Yes. So... I, at this point, do not know the statistics here because the confirmation that we get from the Ukrainian side is much smaller than even what the Russian side is saying. So the Russian Commissioner on Children's Rights, Maria Lvova Bielova, released her report for the number of children from last year, and it was in the hundreds of thousands, I believe. But then that doesn't quite accord with the Ukrainian estimates, which are much lower because they can only give that estimate if it's a confirmed deportation. And it's obviously very difficult to confirm a lot of the, the statistics, especially when these children are orphans or they're in some sort of institution. So they don't necessarily have guardians that could confirm that they've been removed from Ukrainian territory. So the numbers are very complicated. But in terms of the state of play now, this is absolutely continuing. In the update, I just wrote a section on how the Kherson Oblast administration is removing children to the Russian Far East as part of rest and rehabilitation programs where these children will apparently receive medical and psychiatric evaluation. So this is something that we see literally every single day. So it's continuing and the justifications and this guise of humanitarian necessity for this children is being actively employed by Russian officials and occupation officials on a daily basis. We do have reports, and if whether or not I've got the geography right on this one, we do have reports that children have been removed to institutions that are actually closer to Alaska than they are to Ukraine. So they've gone so far east in Russia that they're actually closer to the United States than they are to Ukraine, which is just an, an insane statistic. If you're going to pretend that you're moving this, these children out of humanitarian necessity, you don't move them so that they're so far from their own home that they're closer to Alaska. How do you account for the relative lack of focus in the West on this issue? It seems that we focus predominantly on the military sphere, but this is surely integral to Putin's project 
and what is at stake in the wider West and for Ukraine. Why is this not being more talked about? So that's a really interesting question. And I think that because it's so egregious and deeply uncomfortable, there's a lot of hesitancy in the West to talk about it. And I think part of it is because the Russian information operation, that this is a humanitarian endeavor, has actually been fairly successful. Because if Russian sources and Russian officials are basically saying that they've removed children for medical reasons, humanitarian reasons, that they're removing them from the front line for their own safety. And then we see videos of happy, smiling children in camps in Russia where it looks like they have access to outdoor space, that sort of thing. That's a very uncomfortable thing to think about. But on the reverse side of that, in in the eyes of international law, any removal of population, specifically children, from their country of origin to the country of an occupying power is always going to be forcible and always going to be inherently coercive under international law. Despite if the guardians of these children are giving them permission to go to these camps and rest and relax in Russia, whatever the guise is, the circumstances of living in a war zone are sufficiently coercive that it is an illegal deportation under international law. And I think because of the way that it's portrayed and this information operation is perpetrated by high-ranking Russian officials, it's made it this almost radioactive thing to talk about in the West because it's so egregious and so deeply uncomfortable and unsettling in a lot of ways. Thinking about it strategically, again, what Putin is doing here, We've obviously seen the elections taking place in the territories where, as you say, vast numbers of Russians have been transported into occupied Ukrainian territories. How would you articulate the strategy and do you think it's successful? So from what we can tell based off of the results of the elections in occupied territories so far, it does appear as though this strategy has been successful because the leading United Russia Party, according to these elections, which I just want to disclaim are illegal under international law, they're sham elections. So anything I'm talking about in regards to this election is under the understanding that they are illegal sham elections inflicted by an illegal occupying power. So I'll say that first off. But under that framework, it does appear that the elections have been successful. The United Russia Party, so the leading party, has won the majority of seats in these elections in occupied areas. And additionally, the occupation officials were able to demonstrate what they would say are high levels of voter turnout. And basically, again, going back to this idea of wanting to portray this veneer of legitimacy around the occupation, the way that they portrayed this high rate of voter turnout in all of the occupied areas and high civic engagement has very much helped them consolidate additional kind of occupational power and lend this very insidious veneer of legitimacy to the occupation. This is almost an open question and perhaps an unfair one to put to you, but Do you think this damage is repairable from the Ukrainian perspective or do you think it is irreparable? And that is, of course, the reason why it has been conducted in the way that it has so ruthlessly and so speedily. So I think the obvious answer is that we all hope that it is repairable. But I do think that one of the strongest motivators for the way that Russia has been conducting the occupation of Ukraine is such that they're trying to make it very deliberately difficult for Ukraine to reintegrate its own territories. So whether that's 
the increasing use of Russian language curricula, Russian history curricula in schools in occupied areas, the forced rubilization of occupied areas, Russian passportization efforts, different social control measures, things as small as maternity capital payments. So payments made to women for having a certain amount of children who will then, of course, be registered as Russian citizens and given Russian passports. And even the fact that names on birth certificates are being changed from the Ukrainian alphabet to the Russian alphabet. All of these tiny little things will, down the road, make it more difficult for Ukraine to reintegrate its own territories. I'm not saying it's impossible, but that this difficulty is an intentional effect that Russia desires in the way that it's administrating the occupation of Ukraine. We've already heard evidence that the Ukrainian government has said to people in occupied territories, go along with this for your own safety. We support you. What evidence do you see, if any, of people resisting this? Of course. So there are anecdotes, several anecdotes of partisan activity behind Russian lines in occupied Ukraine. Things as simple as pamphlets being printed in Ukrainian language or parents refusing to send their children to Russian occupied schools, that sort of thing. So there is individualized resistance and it is very difficult to judge the efficacy of these partisan actions because a lot of the information that we get about what's happening in occupied areas is coming from Russian sources. So they're not necessarily going to be reporting on efforts to complicate the different lines of effort that they're undertaking. So in that way, the information space is a little more restricted. So I, I don't know if I can necessarily give a confident assessment on the efficacy of that sort of partisan activity. But we know it exists. We know that it's happening. And we know that there are plenty of people behind the Russian lines who are doing their best to really try to target and complicate occupation efforts on all levels. A couple of months ago, I spoke to representatives from the Danish charity Dignity, which looks at torture and violence, basically, and torture victims. And one of the points they made was the scale of violence in the early weeks and months of the Russian occupation of swathes of Ukraine, especially in the south. Uh, and one of the points that stays with me is they said that every single police station they looked at, at some point, there had been extrajudicial violence and torture. It was very widespread. Is that something you can talk about a little bit, the use of violence by the occupation authorities? What do we know about the state of play now? This is one of the areas where we get into a little bit more restriction within our sourcing because we're not going to see very much of this from the Russian side, if at all. So I think a lot of what we see will be the same as what you see, Western reporting, Ukrainian reporting, that sort of thing. But that being said, I will say that there are several lines of effort through which Russia is basically facilitating the occupation of Ukraine. There's the military aspect, so trying to gain and occupy territory. There's social, economic, political, bureaucratic, legal aspects, etc. And the kind of intense violence against Ukrainian civilians is absolutely a line of effort. It's a method of basically psychologically impacting Ukrainian civilians living behind rear areas, discouraging partisan activity, and giving no alternative other than accepting the occupation administration. Based off what we've observed from Western reporting, Ukrainian reporting, that sort of thing, it does appear as though this violence is systemic. We all remember Bucha and Izum and the different remnants of torture and abuse that have gone on in areas that have been deoccupied. 
Um, and it's enough to say that that violence and intimidation and these coercive tactics are absolutely a line of effort that are pursued by Russian authorities as part of the occupation of Ukraine and the systemic campaign to eradicate Ukrainian national identity. From an analyst's perspective, would you call it genocidal? So from a analytical perspective, what I can do is look at the facts that we have and then look at the international law on this. And ISW continues to assess and has assessed since we first started especially observing the deportations of children that several different lines of effort undertaken by Russian authorities in Ukraine appear to be in violation of the Geneva Convention, whether that is the deportation of swaths of the Ukrainian population, specifically of children, or the different uh, methods undertaken to essentially systemically eradicate Ukrainian national identity in occupied areas. So tiny little things like the thing I mentioned about switching birth certificates to Russian or teaching uh, Russian history instead of Ukrainian history in schools, that sort of thing. So we can compare the facts that we have in the open source, specifically coming from Russian sources themselves, and compare them against the international law, which is how ISW has formulated the assessment that Russia is most likely engaged in different acts that are in violation of the Geneva Convention, as well as likely a larger and wider campaign of ethnic cleansing, which has a much more complicated definition under international law. But that's where we currently stand on that. One of your other major interests is looking at the military side of this. And we've heard a lot from the people we've interviewed here at the Institute for the Study of War about Russian military doctrine and how it's changed. And I thought it might be quite useful for our listeners because it's a phrase we use quite a lot and bandy about. But what is Russian military doctrine and how do you think that might have changed in the past year? So a couple points to make about Russian military doctrine right off the bat here. First, it's that the current Russian system is very much influenced by the Soviet military system, which very much in terms of the way that officers and the, the structure of forces and the hierarchy within the officer corps, etc., is very much based around this highly scientific and formulaic strategy, right? That if you put in these inputs, you'll get this output. And that's a very simplified expression of what Russian military doctrine is. But we've seen a really interesting interplay of when that hasn't been employed in Ukraine versus when that has been employed in Ukraine and how both cases have had different results. So, for example, over the summer and then I guess into fall and winter of last year, we saw Russian forces really not operating doctrinally. We saw the volunteer battalions being deployed ad hoc throughout the front line. And then the way that these formations were just cobbled together with mobilized men that were called up during the partial mobilization call-up of the fall. And just generally this mess of what we would refer to as cats and dogs just knocking around in Ukraine. And this lack of doctrinal structure and the lack of kind of application of this very scientific Soviet-style doctrine really led to negative results. We saw the collapse of the Kharkiv front during the Ukrainian counteroffensive in September around this time last year. Same thing with Kherson. The Kherson thing was a very much the impacts of having very random formations from different military districts within Russia deployed to the same area. So if Russian doctrine was being employed correctly, that means that a Russian military district, which is the highest organizational level, would 
deploy all of its constituent armies, divisions, regiments, et cetera, in one geographical area. And last year, that was absolutely not the case. We had Western military district units in one place and then others in another place, and it was a mess. So we started seeing the shift towards more doctrinal deployment of Russian forces during their preparations while they were preparing for their winter-spring offensive. And the best example of this is the Luhansk Oblast axis from probably between January to March of this year, where we saw elements of the Western military district deployed down to the regiment level in a very doctrinally sound, doctrinally consistent way. So the motorized rifle divisions of the Western military district were deployed within the same geographical area in Luhansk Oblast. They clearly each had their own area of operations, et cetera. And very much this is where we're seeing that kind of formulaic scientific, okay, this 144th Motor Rifle Division is going to be here. They're going to send these regiments here, and it's going to accomplish X effect. However, of course, we come up against the kind of endemic issues that the Russian military is facing, and that offensive operation didn't really go anywhere. But this was where we really started seeing this transition back to doctrinal deployments of Russian forces. And it does appear as though they learned from this in the context of the current Ukrainian counteroffensive in the South. What we're seeing in the South is the doctrinal deployment of different formations of the Southern Military District, specifically its 58th Combined Arms Army, in areas of the front where the Ukrainians are currently pursuing counteroffensive operations, so specifically in Western Zaporizhia Oblast. And it appears as though the 58th Combined Arms Army and its constituent divisions and motorized rifle regiments are each kind of deployed to a specific area of responsibility where they're conducting defensive operations. So we're seeing much more doctrinally sound defensive application in the South specifically. And it's interesting to compare that to, for example, Bakhmut, which after the Wagner group withdrawal from Bakhmut, the Russian order of battle in the city is just a disaster. So that's very different from the South right now. You can basically attribute an area of the front to a certain formation, and you can probably guess with pretty high fidelity that the formations side by side to a given formation will be part of the same military district or division, that sort of thing. And then that is having impacts on more of the tactical defensive level. So we've seen Russian forces, um, specifically in these much more coherent kind of units of the 58th Combined Arms Army, et cetera, defending in a way that's consistent with defensive doctrine. So they have created these defensive lines. They defend along the line. Ukrainians might be able to break and push the line couple hundred meters, and then Russian forces meet them at that new point and push them back. And this sort of flexible defensive doctrine is doctrinally sound. And this is what we've been seeing Russian forces, specifically Southern military district forces, pursuing in the south of Ukraine. Can I ask, it's really, that was a really fascinating analysis. And you drew this distinction between what we saw last year and this year, especially around Bakhmut, it's a mess. And I think quite a few Western analysts looked at that and said, the Russian army is not a learning organization. Do you think that analysis still holds? Or is it potentially more complicated than that? I think it's more complicated than that. And I think that we've actually seen that the Russian military has quite a decent propensity to learn. Rusi has actually done some really good work on kind of tactical adaptation and that sort of thing. But I think that there have been elements of applying lessons learned from past 
huge failures, for example, the Kherson and Kharkiv counteroffensives, and the way that those are being counterapplied in the face of a new Ukrainian counteroffensive. And I do think that people can be a little bit dismissive of the Russian military's capacity to learn and absorb information and take that to a tactical and operational level, especially when it comes to defense. What chatter do you see from the Russian side about how the Ukrainians are doctrinally fighting? What do they say about their, their enemies? Yeah, so especially in the South, there's a lot of Russian focus on the way that Ukraine is conducting this counteroffensive. And from what we can tell based off of uh, Russian military correspondents, mill bloggers, etc., they have been emphasizing two main things. The first being that Ukrainians are, for the most part, attacking in small assault groups, normally with one or two armored vehicles in support, and that they're using this to try to punch through a small part of the line and pursue further, deeper penetrations. And then as well, Russian sources are very concerned about the fact that Ukraine seems to be very successfully conducting troop rotations And this is interesting considering very widespread complaints that Russian forces aren't really rotating and bringing in fresh troops the way that Ukraine appears to be able to. So it does seem as though Russian sources are using those two, so the small group assaults and then the the constant reserve and rotation things to really define current Ukrainian counteroffensive operations, especially in the South. Two final questions from me. We're journalists, you're an analyst. It's our job to report factually and offer the best analysis that we can. That requires a sense of detachment quite a lot of the time to some pretty horrific stuff. I'm sure that you've seen some of the videos that we've seen in this past year. I'm sure a lot shocked you, but was there anything that particularly stood out at you as desensitised as you've naturally would have become by covering this that, that you still recall Yeah, there are definitely, I think all of my examples of this are going to be with the issue of children and the deportation of children. To me, it is incredibly, still to this day, I've been doing the tracking of children for over a year now, but it is incredibly heartbreaking to watch videos of Ukrainian children in Russia talk about how Ukraine is evil and awful and how they have such a better life in Russia. And I've found myself watching these videos and just just breaking down into tears because that level of, I guess, evil, like that you would take a child from its home and force it to, to abandon its identity and abandon its family and its homeland and take on a very different identity. That to me is a level of heartbreak that I don't think I'll ever be able to get over and that no amount of trying to be detached and desensitized and a good analyst, for example, I, the, the human element, especially when it comes to children, is not something that I've ever been able to get over, if that makes sense. I'll finish this with a, a more general observation, I suppose, which goes back to this conversation we've been having about the moral issue here. And I think In the West, there's a little bit of hesitancy, maybe growing hesitancy about why are we continuing to support Ukraine? And my answer to that increasingly has been this moral human issue. Like Ukraine is fighting not for territory and meters of ground. Like sure, yes, on a tactical level, that is what military operations are aimed at. 
But ultimately, what this war is about and why the West needs to be invested in continuing to help Ukraine win is the the hundreds of thousands of children who've been deported to Russia and who are forgetting their Ukrainian identity. And it's the torture chambers and the, the police stations that have been repurposed into interrogation rooms and all of these like deeply, deeply human things that result from a war. And I think as a military analyst, specifically, it gets very, very easy to do this kind of big hand, little map thing, where I just look at maps all day, and it's either coded blue or coded red. And that's what it is. And then you have to take a step back and realize that ultimately, war isn't about territory and gaining and losing territory. It's about people and people are suffering as a result of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. And the West has to be deeply invested in continuing to support Ukraine for that main reason. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you. Thank you so much. Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first three months for just £1 at www.telegraph.co.uk forward slash Ukraine The Latest. Or sign up to Dispatches, our Ukraine newsletter, which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. We also have a Ukraine live blog on our website, where you can follow updates as they come in throughout the day, including insights from regular contributors to this podcast. You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm London time each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so that you don't miss it. To our listeners on YouTube, please note that due to issues beyond our control, there is sometimes a delay between broadcast and upload. If you want to hear Ukraine The Latest as soon as it is released, do refer to podcast apps. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider following Ukraine The Latest on your preferred podcast app. And, if you have a moment, leave a review, as it helps others find the show. You can also get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing ukrainepod at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message. As ever, we are especially interested to hear where you are listening from around the world. Ukraine The Latest was produced by Rachel Porter, and the executive producers are myself, David Knowles, and Louisa Wells. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.